This is an ABC podcast. Philosophy and theology have always been close associates. There was a time when theology was crowned the queen of the sciences, and while few people would be inclined to call it that today, there's still a lot of theological sediment in the way that we think, even in a secular society like Australia. And that means that traces of theology can be found all over the place, wherever thinking gets done, particularly in our politics, where a certain notion of the sacred is never far from the surface, in spite of the fact that many of us want to keep God and politics as far away from each other as possible. But maybe the question isn't, how do we get theology out of secular politics, but what kind of theology is best suited to secular politics, and what kind of secular philosophy can help us talk about the whole thing? On RN, I'm David Rutledge. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. I don't write as a sort of Christian theologian. Thinking seriously about religion doesn't require religious commitment any more than to sort of be interested in and appreciate. Painting requires that one is actually a painter. Even though I'm at a Catholic university, I'm not actually Catholic myself. What I want to do is for people who might not have any religious commitments of their own or might not even be interested in religion, I want to show that there are problems that are really present in societies like Australia that religious traditions can help us to think about, regardless of whether we ourselves are committed to a particular religious tradition. And so one of the things I want to do is to retrieve the diversity of Christian theology to show that it's it doesn't always correspond to the stereotypes that people have of it, and to place it in conversation with atheistic philosophy in order to try to think about whether these theological traditions can help us to address political problems like the problem of the sacred and its role in politics. David Neuheiser is a research fellow with the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. He's a specialist in continental philosophy and a certain kind of theology that has fascinating affinities with the work of such figures as Jacques Derrida. More of that to come. But to get us there, David is also at the head of a project at ACU called Atheism and Christianity, Moving Past Polemic. Our feeling is that most of the conversation around atheism tends to be pretty polemical and apologetic. So there are uh, people on the one side who argue, atheists who argue that religion is just stupid or dangerous and they're quite sort of dismissive um, of it. And then on the other side, there are defenders of religion who are equally polemical, who argue that it's required if society is going to be good and if people are going to be fulfilled. And we think both sides in this pretty polemical debate tend to focus on a narrow question about whether there's evidence for or against belief in the existence of a divine being. But actually what we've found, we're three years into the project, what we've found is that older forms of classic atheism like uh, David Hume and Friedrich Nietzsche and Ludwig Feuerbach, Karl Marx, they recognize that the issue that's at stake with respect to religion isn't simply about what people believe, but that religious traditions actually encompass ethical commitments and political practices, and there's an aesthetic dimension that's really important. And so these older critics of religion worry about these broader issues, and they situate the sort of narrow question about beliefs in that context. And at the same time, there are older traditions of especially Christian thought, as where most of our expertise lies, that situate the sort of issue about believing in God 
in a much wider context of sort of practice and politics. And we think that once the focus is turned to this broader context, really interesting points and surprising points of intersection emerge between perspectives that are actually really different. Yeah, I sometimes wonder if there's a sense in which if you want to build a bridge between religious and secular thinking, then secular philosophy can come in very handy because philosophy is full of analogues for theological concepts and arguments that don't look like theology but can readily be engaged with by religious and secular inquirers. Is that something you'd go along with? Absolutely, yeah. So a lot of my own research uh, personally is on contemporary continental philosophy, especially French philosophy. And for thinkers like Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, they think about religion really seriously throughout their careers. And it's partly for reasons of historical genealogy. They realize that in the West, even though fewer people are religiously committed than they might have been 400 years ago, for reasons of history, religion remains really influential. It shapes the way people think about a host of issues, even if um, they don't think of themselves as religious, it's still operative in a sort of latent sense. Hmm. But at the same time, these philosophers realize, even though they're atheists, that there are really rich resources in these ancient traditions that um, not always, but in some respects, actually intersect with their own preoccupations. So this is especially clear in Derrida, who develops a sort of uh, idea of democracy to come that's informed by messianic traditions drawn from Judaism and Christianity. And he sort of uses these religious traditions that aren't his own in any obvious way to think about what democracy means in the context of secular societies. Well, with that in mind, let's uh, talk about political theology and um, maybe trace some of its development. It's uh, the, the, the modern founding father of political theology, you could say, was Carl Schmitt, who wrote a book titled Political Theology in 1922. And he asserted in that book that the concepts of modern politics are fundamentally theological. It's a very interesting claim. What did he mean by that? There's this common idea that secularization involves the disappearance of religion, that it simply goes away. But Schmidt is sort of an early representative of the view that actually what happens in secularization, something changes with respect to religion in the West. But it's not that religion just goes away. He says that religious concepts and symbols are actually translated, they're sort of transmuted into a different context. And there's sort of three layers on which we can see this happening. So... There's a sort of obvious sense that in the modern period, even in societies that are mostly secular, people continue to appeal to religious beliefs explicitly in support of a political agenda. So, for instance, recently in Australia, the debate over marriage equality, many people actually from both sides of the debate defended their position by appealing to religious doctrines. There's a sort of second layer that Schmidt pointed to, which is more interesting in a way, which is that in his view, the concepts that we have to think about politics in countries that used to be Christian, for historical reasons, they are pretty deeply shaped by a history of Christian theology. So, Schmidt wrote a lot about the 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes, and Schmidt argued that Hobbes derives his account of political sovereignty from theological reflection on the sovereignty of God in certain theological systems. But there's a third layer, which is probably the most interesting one, which is not simply a sort of explicit appeal to religion, and it's not an identifiable historical influence 
Maybe an example of this is uh, sort of close to home for me because I live in Melbourne. On the Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne, there's this phrase that's carved into the wall, let all men know that this is holy ground. So because this is a secular site, it's for the nation in a way, this phrase doesn't affirm a particular religious tradition. And my understanding is that it was designed to avoid being sectarian in this way. But it still appeals to a holiness that echoes in a pretty deep way the deep themes in religious traditions. And that sort of idea that there's something holy about this shrine of remembrance uh, does something that's really important for politics. And according to Schmidt, writing in the 1920s, he thinks that this sort of dimension of politics remains really influential, even if religious commitment has diminished. Okay, so in Australia then, I mean, you mentioned the Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne, and of course we have Anzac Day coming up. So, you know, Anzac Day itself, the flag, the constitution, maybe the concept of our sovereign borders, these, these are all things invested with a significance that is sacred in a very literal sense of the term. Is this what Schmidt would say? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So I think in his view and for theorists that have come after him, there's this sense that in order to motivate political action, in order to bring a nation together and make people feel like they are, are actually a collective, it's necessary to draw on these sites of extraordinary significance that aren't, um, they're not limited by particular policy proposals. They're not the sort of result of the calculation of rational self-interest. They have a sort of symbolic power that exceeds any of these dimensions. And so in this sense, uh, for these theorists, they are sacred in a really robust sense, even if they're not religious. And this, of course, is leading us back in the direction of a, a certain kind of theology that we're going to be talking about in a minute. But uh, first of all, I mean, we talked about Carl Schmitt, uh, who articulated this concept of political theology. Let's talk a little bit about the development of that. Um, in the mid-20th century, you had theologians like Reinhold Niebuhr in Germany developing this idea of political theology and what its various aims and functions should be. What was Niebuhr saying? Yeah, so there are sort of two different traditions that are encompassed by this term political theology. One of them is the sort of more obvious sense of the term, which is sort of theological reflection on politics from a particular tradition. So that's what theologians like Reinhold Niebuhr or Jürgen Moltmann or Dorothy Zülle, they are trying to draw on Christian theology in particular to try to figure out what Christians ought to think about political questions that are current. There's also at the same time a rather different tradition that also gets called by the name political theology, which is sort of stemming from Schmidt, who's not doing theology in the full sense like Niebuhr is. But for this tradition, it has a sort of descriptive focus. So it argues that theology remains quite significant for politics that, as Schmidt said, as you noted, the concepts that we have to think about politics with are influenced in many ways by theology. And so for this tradition of political theology, it doesn't necessarily say this is a good or a bad thing, but it says we need to recognize that there's this interaction between theology and politics if we're actually going to have a chance of addressing the quite difficult problems that we face today politically. So for these theologians, their preoccupation was the, the danger that they saw in mid-century European politics, that divine authority will invest a particular political regime with a sort of unquestionable authority. So this sort of collapse of the distance between the divine and the human realm, they saw as a really present danger. 
on RN. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week is David Neuheiser from Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. We're exploring a space where philosophy intersects with theology and politics and where some of our more difficult political problems can be fruitfully addressed. One theological tradition that David Neuheiser finds particularly useful in talking about secular politics is the mysterious and somewhat counterintuitive tradition of negative theology. It's a very old tradition, but one that has really interesting affinities with some very modern, even postmodern, strands of secular philosophy. Negative theology is a hugely influential tradition of Christian thought that runs from the second century, so at the very beginning of sort of Christian history. All through the Middle Ages, it was hugely important. And then uh, in the present, you know, people like I mentioned, uh, Jacques Derrida, uh, but a number of other philosophers have continued to draw really deeply on this tradition. The sort of basic insight is inspired by themes that are pretty deep in Christian scripture. So in the Hebrew scriptures and the Torah, there's this prohibition against idolatry that expresses a pretty deep instinct of this tradition. And later Christian theologians thought that this was a danger not only with respect to physical idol statues and such, but they thought that conceptual idolatry was just as bad. So they thought if people come up with a sort of a concept of God that they think actually corresponds to the way that God is, then there's the risk that this conceptual structure will serve as an idol and actually diminish a divinity that they thought was actually beyond comprehension. So it, this basic instinct gets modulated in very different ways by different representatives of this tradition. But the sort of key insight, I think, is that Christian theology, in their view, has to incorporate a really radical self-critique in order to resist the danger that what Christians think or what Christians do will sort of congeal into a dogmatic idolatry that they think would actually separate people from God. Yeah, and what I find really interesting about negative theology is that it's predicated on this idea that God exists beyond human understanding, beyond our, our rational apprehension. And so anything that you can say about God rationally, you can also say, well, actually God is not that, or God is more than that, or God exceeds or transcends that. And one of those concepts that is central to a lot of mainstream Christian theology is simply that God exists, God is present. Whereas right. ne negative theology says that God is also radically absent, which is a very interesting property of the divine. And I wonder if it's one that perhaps makes God accessible to atheists who say, well, there is no God. Negative theology says, well, yes, there is a sense in which that's absolutely true. Yeah, so it is interesting that in, in some forms of this tradition, theology begins with the denial that God exists. So there's this claim that some negative theologians make that the category of being is like every other category of human thought, inappropriate to the divine in some respect. And as you suggest, I think a lot of atheist philosophers have sort of thought this this provides a toehold for a more interesting conversation between atheism and Christian thought. And it seems sometimes to be saying things that are contradictory. But I think if you situate this paradox in the context of time, if you see how it works in, the, in human life as it proceeds over time, it can be seen as an ethical discipline, as articulating a way to affirm particular thoughts and practices while 
acknowledging their uncertainty while resisting the danger that they'll harden into a sort of complacency. Well, let's bring Jacques Derrida into this, who you, you mentioned earlier had a, a very strong interest in negative theology. What was the nature of that interest and how does his work perhaps replicate or, or intersect with some of those ethical concerns in negative theology? Derrida was a French philosopher who was born in Algeria. His career was in France. He died about 15 years ago. He began to read medieval Christian theology when he was a student and in particular, he was drawn to negative theology throughout his career. So very early on, he recognized that there was something sort of broadly similar about this tradition to his own philosophical approach, which he called deconstruction. So deconstruction is, like ne negative theology, quite self-critical. And so throughout his career, he attempts at several points to articulate the relationship between his form of self-criticism and that of negative theology. He he's, uh, insists that what he does is not not to be identified with negative theology. Derrida is quite clear that even though he's quite interested in religious traditions, he doesn't situate himself within a particular religious tradition. But he recognizes that this sort of ethical dimension that I've just described of negative theology, this sort of practice of self-criticism that's designed to open up the possibility of future revision, that is basically, in my reading, the driving instinct of his own philosophical project is uh, a form of self-criticism that doesn't shut down affirmation, but that it resituates every, every affirmation, every practice or thought that we might affirm as a provisional attempt to do the best that we can in the present while acknowledging that we have more to learn in the future. Is there a sense then in which negative theology and the insights that someone like Derrida brings to negative theology can be a sort of antidote to that sacralization that we spoke about earlier that's at work in our modern political arrangements. It, it can, in a sense, desacralize politics in a way that you could say needs to be done. Yeah, no, this is, this is exactly what my first book, which will be published later this year, argues, that this tradition of negative theology and the way that Derrida draws on it makes a really important point for politics. So I think when people pretend that religion has just disappeared... That allows this sacrality that continues to function, these sacred things that continue to hold power over people, it allows it to persist without being evaluated critically. And actually, I think there are lots of ways in which um, things that people hold as special, whether they're people or sort of traditions of thought, they can actually motivate people in ways that are really positive. So I think the challenge is to acknowledge that the sacred remains really powerful and to recognize that its power can be used for good, but to resist the danger that the sacred will sort of harden into a dogmatic complacency. And that's what I think both Derrida's deconstruction and this tradition of negative theology offer, is a way to affirm particular things while at the very same time subjecting them to a critique that holds them open to future revision. Well, you'll be familiar then with a, a common critique of Derrida's work that can perhaps also be levelled at negative political theology, which is that it doesn't, well, not that it doesn't affirm anything, but it doesn't ultimately affirm anything. It doesn't stop at affirmation. There's this, this constant um, slippage between affirmation and negation or construction and deconstruction, if you like, and very hard to build anything concrete on it. How is that politically useful? I think politics actually displays this pattern. There's no ultimate affirmation, to use the phrase that you just used. 
I think when people claim that there's an ultimate affirmation, when they say that this is the place that politics has to stop, that's where things get really dangerous, really scary politically. Um, sort of tries to close down the open debate that properly characterizes democratic politics. So I see Derrida's deconstruction is not closing down affirmation as such. He is actually, I think, quite richly affirmative. I think the point for him is that every affirmation has to remain fluid. It has to stay fresh. It can't harden as if this is the place that we have to stop because there's always more to think about. In a society like Australia or the United States where I come from, there's so much inequality in terms of uh, race and economics and gender that if we sort of think we've arrived, we're just covering over pretty deep injustices that remain. So for Derrida, the idea of justice and the goal of a democratic politics is to continue struggling forward towards a justice and towards a uh, democratic politics that is always in front of us, sort of pushing us forward. So it's an affirmation, but it's an affirmation that has to always continue, has to always move forward into the future. And yet, of course, one of Derrida's really fascinating insights is that meaning or, or morality or ultimate truth, all these things tend to slip through your fingers when you try to get a fix on them. And you could say that's that's a particular concern in today's social landscape, that too many questions are held in suspension like that. And whether these are questions about whether or not the Christchurch mosque shootings were a false flag operation or whether vaccinations cause autism, but, but also ethical questions like whether or not our... Uh, commitments to refugees are, are as urgent to our, as our commitments to our family and friends. And I wonder if, if you feel that holding questions open, holding some of these political questions open has its advantages, but there are some points at which some questions just need to be settled. I think that there are definitely points in politics, but also in our personal lives when it's important to take a stand. But the thing I worry about is if we say in that moment that this is where my thinking has to stop. The world can surprise us because things are really complicated, in fact. And that's especially clear in a really diverse and complicated society like Australia. So the thing I worry about is a sort of brittle affirmation that presents itself as certain in a dogmatic sense and then is subject to being shattered when it's overtaken by events. The thing I think Derrida offers, which is actually the thing I think negative theology offers, is the possibility of taking a really strong stand, but recognizing that one has to take responsibility for the stand that one takes. That when I take a stand, I'm doing the best that I can based on what I know at that point, but I don't have to pretend that I have some sort of certain absolute knowledge that's actually impossible. It's possible to affirm things in a really robust way, to make a strong stand on issues like uh, the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers, for instance, while recognizing that it's important to keep thinking about the problems because the problems are deep and enormously complicated. So what about relativism then? Because when people say, as they often do, that uh, postmodern relativism, quote unquote, is, is a terrible scourge that has gotten us into much of the mess we're in today with its cynical refusal to countenance truth or moral absolutes, is there, I mean, do you think that negative theology and the work of someone like Derrida offer a means of having postmodernism, having a certain degree of relativism without the nihilism, right? Postmodernism for people who still want to believe in something. I do, yeah, I do. 
I mean, the topic of my book is hope. The title is Hope in a Secular Age. And I'm drawn to the concept of hope because I think it offers a way of taking a stand that's strong while holding that position open to evolution in the future. And I, I developed this understanding of hope in conversation with Derrida because I think it's an antidote to uh, relativism. I think it's, it offers an alternative to both a sort of complacency that's closed to further reflection and at the same time to a despairing resignation that acts as if nothing really matters. Hope is a form of investment that, in my understanding, acknowledges that it's actually uncertain. And I actually think uh, politics of hope is enormously important in, in response to the pretty profound political problems that are um, popping up all over the globe. I worry that political movements in the wake of the Great Recession in 2007 from Occupy to the Arab Spring, they were really good at criticizing a given arrangement of power, but they sometimes had a hard time transitioning into a, a sort of positive proposal for concrete political life. And I think it's difficult to hold those dimensions of political reflection together, the strong critique that's often required, but also the compromise that is the precondition for concrete political action. But I think this sort of politics of hope offers a way to affirm particular projects while recognizing that they don't have to be the last word, that we can take a stand for a particular agenda while continuing to reflect on the complexity of the world as it confronts us. Hope is a really interesting word to bring to someone like Derrida as well, I think, because his many critics will often claim that there's something about his work that leads you into this this terrible abyss of meaningless and it's all very sort of dark and hopeless. Um, but my reading of Derrida is, has always been that he is, he is a very hopeful philosopher. There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of good humour in his work, but something more than that. And of course, he was quite politically engaged himself, wasn't he, more towards the end of his career? He was, yeah, he was. And he actually, at key points, actually affirms particular political projects. But he, I think he sort of exemplifies a way to inhabit this middle space of affirming particular aims without claiming an impossible certainty in relation to those commitments. And I actually think, so I read all of, all of his thought as responding to this um, sort of abyss of meaning that you describe. People often complain that postmodernism sort of leaves us in the abyss. And I think this sense comes from somewhere that's really understandable. And Derrida, Derrida actually diagnoses this. He says that uncertainty is really quite destabilizing on a, just on an emotional, effective level. And so people often want to assert a certainty that they don't possess in order to make life seem more livable. But actually, in his view, this provides a false comfort. And as an alternative, in my reading, he describes a sort of hopeful resilience that acknowledges that the abyss is there, that acknowledges that we don't actually possess certainty, but doesn't take that as a reason to stop. It, it actually constitutes a form of affirmation in the face of uncertainty, which I think is actually really compelling. 
David Neuheiser, Research Fellow with the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. And that brings us to the end of the program for this week. You can listen again if you like. You can find us via the ABC Listen app or any podcasting app. And of course, if you become a subscriber, then we come to you, which is very convenient. Literally hundreds of programs in our back catalogue. Uh, you can also find them on the website at abc.net.au slash rn. Look for the Philosopher's Zone on the program menu. I'm David Rutledge. Tweet me at David P Zone, and thanks for your company. See you next time. Music